Bridge Bank helps breakthrough ideas actually break through and remains dedicated to providing financial solutions to the risk takers, the game changers, and the disruptors. Bridge Bank, a division of Western Alliance Bank. Bridge Bank, be bold, venture wisely. From KQED. From KQD in San Francisco, I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking immigration today, and the one thing everyone seems to agree on is that the border situation is an absolute mess. Congress has, of course, done nothing for years and years to even attempt to fix the structural problems of migration to the U.S. The Biden administration, for its part, has kept policies in place that candidate Biden argued against. For people in desperate situations in unstable countries looking for humanitarian relief, American political gridlock has left them with few workable options. There are some changes in administration policy rolling out, however, and we'll check in with experts about the situation at the border and whether these new efforts are likely to make things better. That's all coming up next after this news. Welcome to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. There's so much bloviation around immigration and our southern border that sometimes it's hard to know where a politically useful Trumpian fever dream ends and reality begins. One fact we do have is that the Border Patrol apprehended more than two million people in the year-long period that ended September 30th of last year, and they've kept coming. That's a lot of people, and they're arriving from a wider array of countries than in previous years. The system's pretty clearly broken, but perhaps it's broken in new ways now. Here to catch us up on this immigration picture, we're joined by Taiki Hendricks, our senior editor covering immigration here at KQED. Welcome, Taiki. Thank you, Alexis. Thanks for joining us. We're also joined by Hamed Ali Aziz, an immigration policy reporter at the Los Angeles Times. Welcome, Hamed. Thank you for having me. And we've got Salvador Rivera, who is a correspondent based in San Diego for BorderReport.com. Welcome, Salvador. Thank you for having me. Yeah, Taiki, let's start with you. I, I think we need a little bit of a pocket history on immigration policy in the U.S. as it's kind of evolved. How is the system kind of supposed to work? Sure. Well, you know, I guess when we talk about immigration, there are a lot of different systems. There are um, ways that people can come to the U.S. as to become permanent residents with green cards. A lot of that is um, through family ties, and some of it is through, uh, em- like, employers, jobs, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, people coming for jobs. Um, there's also a, a fair amount of um, of temporary worker visas mm-hmm. for both high-skilled and low-skilled workers. Um, and these are systems that and numbers, so forth, that haven't really changed in you know, many decades, and it's a system that is kind of rigid, maybe not responsive to where we are as a country and economy and and so forth and, and who wants to come here. And I think it's, it's worth saying that, um, you know, people do want to come to the U.S. It's a beacon in terms of people seeking refuge, and it's um, <clears throat> a beacon in terms of economic opportunity. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also have uh, a system where we accept refugees who are fleeing persecution in their home country, uh, and sometimes people come individually. Refugees are processed outside the country, but people can also come here as individuals, 
and say, wait, I have a fear of persecution if I return. And under U.S. law and and international law, we're uh, obliged to give them a hearing and see if they meet the criteria for asylum, which are the same criteria as to be declared a refugee. And if they do, um, you know, pass that threshold, then then they can become permanent residents here also. And I think what we're seeing at the border is an increasing number of people coming and asking for asylum. Mm -hmm. And so where you had a lot of labor migration, irregular migration from Mexico across the southern border in decades past um, because of our, you know, closely connected countries and economies, um, we're having less uh, of people sneaking over the border trying to get here and find jobs and more people coming and saying help. (laughs) Yeah, saying help, um, you know, and, and please, you know. Uh, hear my case. Yeah. Yes, we've got those buckets. We've got the U.S. permanent residents with green cards. We've got temporary worker visas. There's your H-1Bs, your H-2As, like tied to uh, employment. And we've got these refugees um, seeking asylum. You know, Salvador, um, thank you so much, Taiki. Salvador, you've been covering the border for years and years as a reporter. From your perspective on the ground, how have things changed from kind of Obama years into the, you know, very dramatic Trump ones and now President Biden? Correct. Even during the Obama, it was still mostly people from Mexico who were making the journey, trying to, quote unquote, sneak into the country. Uh, But as time evolved or we've seen in recent years through the Trump era and now into Biden, we saw a lot more people from Central America and South America, Brazil, Peru, Colombia. We've seen a lot of more more people from that part of the Western Hemisphere. So not just Mexico, then it became Central America. But now we're seeing people from all over the world. I've been um, working the border, as you mentioned, and I visit places to do stories and I, I run across people from, you know, Russia, Nepal, India, the Republic of Congo. I mean, you see them from everywhere. And that is the biggest change that I've seen in the last 10, 15 years. It's just the nationalities, the origins of the migrants are vastly different than what they were 15, 20 years ago. So how are people actually doing it? Like, are people, like, flying into Mexico City? Are they, you know, arriving on ships in Colombia? Like, what what is, is there an established way of doing this for people from all over the world? Is that why it's sort of like there's the infrastructure now to move north? That's that's exactly right. And if you have the means, you're flying into Mexico City. A lot of people begin their truck in South America, especially people from Haiti and other countries, African countries seem to go through Brazil. And then they start to make their way up South America into Central America and then finally into Mexico. If you have the means and people do fly into destinations like Cancun. And then Mexico City. And then from there you go, you fly either to, you know, Tijuana, could be Juarez, other points along the southern border. And then they make their way or they try to make their way across the border. But almost 
always they have to be tied into some sort of a smuggler smuggling organization and that leads to more problems so you need somebody to help you get into an area where you might be able to cross the border but that's going to cost you a lot of money so that again is become another byproduct of this huge migration pattern that we're seeing is that people now have to seek out the assistance of smugglers and crime mm. organizations that are preying on these folks and oftentimes misleading them, telling them, hey, come on over, we'll get you across. They advertise on social media all over the world, especially in Latin America, and they convince people that this may be a good time to try to come to the U.S. and maybe we can get asylum at some point and then we'll be in the U.S. from for the yeah. foreseeable future. Oh, man. Hamed, you know, this policy known as Title 42 became well known when the Trump administration really implemented it during the pandemic. Can you just remind our listeners of, you know, what Title 42 is and how it was deployed at the border? Yeah, Title 42 was instituted uh, at the beginning of the pandemic uh, during the Trump administration. And in essence, it allows border agents to quickly expel uh, turnaround migrants to Mexico or to deport them to their home countries without offering them, you know, the normal access uh, to asylum protections. So it really was a game changer uh, at the border uh, during the Trump administration and carrying into the Biden administration because it, it made it uh, more efficient for these border agents and ICE to, to deport people. Yeah. But that created other problems, right, along the border? Yeah, totally. I mean, I think one of the things with Title 42 is uh, there's a lot of recidivism, you know, people being turned back and uh, crossing repeatedly because there aren't the same consequences as there are uh, in the formal deportation process. So there's been a lot of recidivism. Um, and ultimately, uh, the U.S. is uh, relying on other countries to take back uh, the migrants uh, who are trying to cross into the U.S. It's, you know, it's incumbent on Mexico taking people who are not from Mexico. It's incumbent on uh, other countries taking their, uh, you know, the, the people from their countries. So it's it's a challenge. So, I mean, the right to seek asylum is an international human right, right, that's kind of recognized uh, across the world. And I remember as Title 42 was being implemented, you know, immigration, not just immigration advocates, but like human rights advocates were sort of outraged by what was happening. Has that changed during the Trump, during the Biden administration, Hamid? No, not at all. I mean, I, there was uh, immense pressure on this administration in the first year to get rid of Title 42. And we saw... Uh, some movement toward that, especially in the fall of 2021. But as the COVID spread, as the border uh, numbers increased, uh, the Biden administration was uh, hesitant to do that, despite you know these these protests from advocates and politicians, including you know prominent politicians Chuck Schumer, Bob Menendez. Um, and uh, it took them a while to, to even consider bringing Title 42 down, and and they they tried last early last year, but were stopped. And they're stopped basically by uh, federal courts, right, or, or states suing, right, which is now a, a case that's on its way to the Supreme Court, I understand. Right. It's it's an in, insanely complicated uh, situation with Title 42. There's dueling lawsuits. The one that, you know, the Biden administration, uh, they tried to get rid of Title 42 last spring, and a judge in Louisiana stopped them from doing so. And then this uh, this fall, this winter, uh, the ACLU was 
trying through a federal court to stop Title 42 because they thought it was illegal and a judge agreed with them. Uh, but the states, uh, re Republican states intervened and said, hey, we want to have a chance to argue this as well. So that the Supreme Court allowed that to happen. And now we're in this position where uh, Title 42 is in place uh, for the near future, potentially uh, through June. We're talking about the situation along the U.S. southern border and President Biden's efforts on immigration policy. We're joined by Hamed Ali Aziz, immigration policy reporter at the Los Angeles Times. Tyga Hendricks, our own Tyga Hendricks, senior editor covering immigration here at KQED and Salvador Rivera, a correspondent based in San Diego with BorderReport.com and longtime uh, reporter along the border. We want to know about your experiences with the U.S. immigration system. I mean, have you encountered it? We know lots of our listeners are immigrants or are, come from immigrant families. Based on your experience, how would you change the way the system works? You can give us a call. The number's 866-733-6786. Again, we're looking for people who've had experience with the U.S. immigration system. And based on that experience, how would you change the way the system works? The number, again, is 866 733 Six seven eight six, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. We're KQED Forum, and the email is forum at kqed.org. Let me tell you what we're going to talk about in the next uh, section of the show. Beth, one of our listeners, writes: Even with more liberal immigration reform, unless there is a way to fix the problems in the countries that people are fleeing from, won't we still have tens of thousands of people entering from Mexico, or really through Mexico in this case, seeking asylum? And what percentage of those seeking asylum are college-educated or have skills that the United States needs? That's the topic in the next segment of our show. I'm Alexis Madrigal. This is Forum. Stay tuned for more. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about President Biden's efforts on immigration policy and the evolving situation along the U.S. southern border. We're joined by Salvador Rivera, correspondent based in San Diego with BorderReport.com. Taiki Hendricks, senior editor covering immigration here at KQED. And Hamed Aliaziz, immigration policy reporter with the Los Angeles Times. You know, Salvador, um, as our listener Beth noted, when we talk about people arriving at the U.S. border, moving through Mexico, really we're talking about what's happening elsewhere in the Americas, which you've kind of alluded to. Can we talk about, you know, we there's a broad array of people 
But there's really a, a limited number of countries where like many, many people are coming from. How have things really changed? You know, I, I guess it's Venezuela. We got Nicaragua. Like, talk to me a little bit about that. Well, most people are fleeing the same issues, whether they're being persecuted, they're fleeing violence, or drug cartel wars, you know, lack of opportunities, accurate food, education opportunities for the children. And it seems like it's we're concentrated on countries that are in Central America. And it, lately, I am seeing a lot of people, uh, you know, it's Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba, countries that have some sort of a communist, a socialist background in terms of politics. And that seems to be the bulk of the folks coming through. And in fact, we, we just saw an order by Customs and Border Protection that came out over the weekend, almost uh, like a warning to people from this country saying, if, if you cross the border without proper documentation and you're caught, we're going to expel you and send you right back to Mexico, and you may never be eligible for asylum in the future. So this is like a shot across the bow to folks from this countries, and, and actually for other countries as well. Like, we want you to get in line, get through this uh, program that we now have instituted, CBP-1, where we want you to go online, get an appointment, and then we'll tell you when you can come across the border and seek asylum. Um, but to answer your question, it does seem to be concentrated on these countries like that stated, Haiti, Nicaragua, Venezuela, Cuba. But again, you're still seeing a lot of people from Brazil and from Peru now. Um, so it, it it's like the UN out there, yeah. uh, people trying to cross the border. There's still people, uh, the last figures that I saw for December from Customs and Border Protection, well over 20% of the people caught at the border or apprehended were from Mexico. So there's still a lot of folks. That's 20% of the folks of the migrants are still from Mexico. Mm -hmm. So it's Mexico, Central America, and a few countries in South America, along with Haiti, that are predominantly or make up the bulk of the migrants who are coming to the southern border seeking asylum or just seeking a way to find themselves into the U.S. Yeah. You know, Teke, I want to talk a little bit about uh, Venezuela. I mean, I, I, incredible movement of people, internal displacement and, and, and external displacement as well. I was looking at some of the, the numbers that human rights advocates uh, have noted that, you know, four and a half million people uh, have left Venezuela over the last few years. Just for comparison, you know, during the war in Syria, seven million people fled the country. So we're talking like this is a of global proportions, which is one reason why so many people have arrived at the U.S. border. How has the Biden administration tried to deal with this? They created this program, which I, the name of which I think feels very weird to me. Humanitarian parole is what they're calling. It. How yes. is this supposed to work? And Feels like they need to, you know, re reshop the branding there on that one. I don't know. It like, seems terrible to call. Human it. Why is that terrible? I don't know. Um, it is that is the name, humanitarian parole, and it is uh, a tool that uh, has been in the toolkit of administrations going back. Um, if if I remember correctly, really, you know, sort of post World War II, um, and allowing, um, for example, uh, Hungarian. Uh, refugees uh, after the, the communist revolution there in the 50s. Um, lots of people coming out of Cuba around 1980 in the Mariel boat lift. And so it is a tool that has been used in the past. Um, it's kind of in a way like 
DACA or temporary protected status. Um, some of your our listeners may be familiar with for people who are already here who uh, don't have legal status. That's kind of a temporary um, protection from deportation and a, a work permit for two years. This is saying, okay, you can come into the country on a on a sort of temporary conditional basis for two years. You can have a work permit and actually, you know, find employment and support yourself here. Um, because we see that there's a crisis in your home country. And it's also worth noting um, with Title 42, the, the U.S. has an agreement with Mexico that we can expel people from certain nationalities there. We fly other people home to their countries. But Venezuela, Cuba, Haiti, Nicaragua, these are places where we, um, you know, don't have good uh, diplomatic relations or really, you know, in the case of Haiti and in some ways Venezuela, it's, you know, we're kind of talking about a failed state. Um, And so we can't easily send those people back. So the Biden plan is to say, we recognize that these are people with need. We recognize we can't expel them. 30,000 people a month from those four countries can get humanitarian parole in the country. Um, it, to be clear, it's it's not a path to citizenship. There's no permanent residence. And it's not asylum based on, um, you know, making the case uh, that you suffer persecution on the basis of race, religion, nationality, political opinion, membership in a particular social group. Although once you're here, you could apply for asylum. Um, But we did it with Ukrainians and with Afghans in the last, um, you know, year or two. And it's, I think, an effort to try to create a more orderly flow instead of people Uh, You know, coming across the Rio Grande, say, without authorization and presenting themselves to Border Patrol agents and saying, like, as we said before, help, like, I need protection. This is a way with an app that you're supposed to make an appointment to show up at an official port of entry and be processed for this humanitarian parole. Uh, One one key feature that uh, is going to weed out a lot of people is that you need some kind of a sponsor, a person uh, in this country who will be your sponsor and agree to help support you financially so that you're not, you know, a a burden on the the public um, Mm -hmm. coffers. And not everybody has that, of course. And so from the you know, from the right, from the, the Republicans uh, in Congress and so forth, you're getting a lot of pushback that this is too generous and we should be you know, harder and stricter on immigration. From the left, from uh, you know, human rights advocates, immigrant rights advocates, people are saying, wait, you know, how does this comport with, with international asylum law, U.S. asylum law? Uh, and, it, and it's so Biden is kind of trying to thread the needle here and find a Mm-hmm. A middle path, but this is this is the plan um, that he's rolling out. And I would say also, Alexis, you know, it's in concert with a few other things, like tripling the number of refugees that we'll accept from Latin America. Um, those are people who are processed in country or in a neighboring country, uh, making their their claim for protection. Um, there's other kinds of, you know, work effort to disrupt smuggling networks, to 
um, provide some support to Mexico and Central America, recognizing that they're dealing with a big flow of migrants, and also to U.S. border communities that are handling a lot of arrivals. So mm-hmm. it's it's an attempt at a kind of a comprehensive response to to what Salvador is describing on the ground. Without, of course, the sort of actual comprehensive legislation that would let us kind of That's deal with right. this, right? That's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. We're talking about the situation across the Americas, which is sort of arriving at the U.S. southern border and President Biden's efforts on immigration policy. We're joined by Tyke Hendricks, senior editor covering immigration here at KQED, Salvador Rivera, correspondent based in San Diego with BorderReport.com, and Hamed Aliaziz, immigration policy reporter with the Los Angeles Times. If you've had experience with the U.S. immigration system, you or your family, we'd love to know, based on that experience, how would you want to change how the system works? Give us a call. The number is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, or KQED Forum. And the email is forum at kqed.org. Hamed, I wanted to uh, turn this question from one of our listeners to you. Linda writes, I, of course, sympathize with all these poor, desperate people. But I don't understand how they can be seeking asylum instead of regular immigration. I thought asylum was for political persecution. These people seem to be fleeing high crime rates, gang violence, and even violent husbands, all of which is horrible. But how does it qualify for asylum? So, uh, well, we'll I'll just leave the question there. Yeah. I mean, I think, first of all, there is there is this idea of, you know, who are these people coming and, 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 uh, you know, what are they fleeing from? But ultimately... You know, the U.S. has a pretty low bar for um, the, the screening uh, that was that was mentioned earlier for asylum seekers. And that's an effort to allow uh, folks who say they are fleeing asylum to have a chance to pass that screening and then uh, seek asylum in the United States through a formal court proceeding. So, you know, in the case of Haitians, Venezuelans, you know, they are fleeing uh, situations where their their governments, uh, you know, have have, have essentially uh, crumbled and and crime is on the rise, uh, but but like you said, I mean the the reasons for people coming are various and and ultimately there are a lot of people who are coming uh, because of their economic situations as well. Yeah, I mean, I guess what that question to me kind of gets at is you know if you're from a failed state political persecution like i mean if, if people read about what's happening in haiti right now and the kind of the the dissolution of essentially civil society i mean kind of everything is sort of political persecution and everything's kind of not right i mean, I mean it's difficult to to chart a path between like what would be political and not in those and alexis i could yeah. just jump in because yeah. i think you know the way um asylum law uh reads and the way it's been interpreted you know, it's it can be persecution by your government or it can be persecution that your government uh, is failing to protect you from. Mm. And when your government is really not functional and, you know, there's there's chaos and you're, um, you know, you're being attacked for, for your political beliefs um, or your race or religion, you know, these these other categories um you, you know, your government's not able to protect you. So there is there is case law there that also says, you know, if if um, gender based violence um, is is grounds for asylum, if your government is aware of it and isn't able to protect you from it. Uh, and, you know, there are advocates for for uh, 
people who are fleeing gender-based violence who, you know, say, like, look, women's rights are human rights. And and um, so if if women are being persecuted or, or people are persecuted based on their sexual orientation and so forth, um, those things qualify as well. But I would, you know, I mean, a lot of times these things are blurred. There's a mixture of, of reasons that people pick up and, and leave home and... Um, and it's persecution and it's also just, you know, economic desperation. Mm-hmm. And it can be, both can be true. Yeah. Let's uh, go to a caller. Uh, Padma in Union City. Welcome. Thank you. I have, um, I have a question. So how do we exactly verify all the statements of people at the border? We have a set of laws. So all this discussion kind of circumvents those laws. And uh, people, if you say you have to report and let them lose, come back to the courts for your hearing, a lot of times they don't even come. And there's a big political voice here, which actually motivates politicians how they decide on these policies. And the more people flee from towns and cities in different countries, the more economically disadvantaged, disadvantaged those places are going to be because the able-bodied have left. Countries collapse. And at the same time, we have here several thousands, uh, hundreds of thousands maybe, of H-1B visa holders, uh, permit holders, who have been here sometimes 20 years, 30 years, waiting for a green card. And their lives are in limbo. You don't even give them a green card. They don't even have a hearing. They've been productive here, come here with advanced degrees, have been contributing, and their lives are in limbo. Mm-hmm. And how is this, any of this equitable? Are we doing our laws with equity? Yeah. I, I really don't think so. Thank yeah. you. Padma, um, thank you so much. Um, you know, one of the things about immigration policy is it's broken in a lot of different ways. Um, uh, Hamed Ali, let's let's take this one um, to you. This this issue comes up a lot you know, when people have gone through one part of as Taiki was kind of laying out. You know, there's all these different ways that people can can they've gone through one part of the system. They look at another and they say, "Is is this fair across those different systems of migration?" Well, I think ultimately, I think it's important to to note that you know the the right to asylum. Uh, at the border, as was previously noted, is in uh, international law and U.S. law. So this idea of coming to the border and seeking asylum is allowed. Um, and migrants do have to provide testimony and, and go through screenings with DHS officers uh, at the border and in ICE detention oftentimes. And ultimately, you know, there is data shows that, that immigrants do show up. These immigrants do show up for court. This was a, a piece of, you know, this was a, a tension point during the Trump administration. Um, and it's complicated, but there is data that shows that immigrants... Mm-hmm show up uh, for their hearings oftentimes when it's a it's a normal process and not sped up um uh, on the h1b front i think that really highlights that the need for congressional action i think you know you look at these situations the border and uh the the h1b situation green cards there just hasn't been the type of reform to you know allow for more folks to to get green cards to to change the system at the border this uh this system has been uh, so in need of reform for so long and i think that's the one thing that 
the Democrats and you know sometimes Republicans uh, agree on is that there needs to be uh, changes uh, with this system. Yeah, yeah, and just to to piggyback on that, I mean, I think Congress, yeah, uh, getting getting uh, you, you know with a very closely divided Congress, you need Democrats and Republicans to to get behind some changes, and that hasn't been happening. Um, in terms of giving people who are here on temporary work visas like the H-1B a, a pathway to permanence, because um, as the caller mentioned, you know, people have contributed for years and, and put down roots here and so forth. Um, there's also, um, you know, other ways that Congress hasn't hasn't acted to support um, some more lasting strategies and some of the Biden initiatives. One thing that, that Biden... Um, promulgated was a new a new system for um, rather than having your asylum claim decided in an adversarial hearing in immigration court, essentially a deportation proceeding, uh, there is a, a system that that his administration devised where an asylum officer who could hear your case in a more of an office setting and be a little more humane, this is what happens if you fly into the country and ask for asylum. But it's different if you're crossing the border without wow. authorization. And and that was intended both to be more humane and also to be faster and make decisions in you know, a matter of months rather than years. But it requires funding a lot more asylum officer positions. And we haven't seen more money from Congress to do that. So there, you know, there there are other bottlenecks um, in in making, uh, you know, effective change. We're talking about the U.S. immigration picture right now and President Biden's efforts to you know, at least jerry-rig a new kind of system. Uh, the uh, number here, if you'd like to chime in, is 866-733-6786. That's 866-733-6786. We're joined by Teggy Hendricks, senior editor covering immigration at KQED, Salvador Rivera, correspondent based in San Diego with BorderReport.com, and Hamed Aliaziz, immigration policy reporter with the Los Angeles Times. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for more right after the break. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com. We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Welcome back to Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. We're talking about immigration and its many problems through the years and specifically right now. 
Uh, we're joined by Salvador Rivera, correspondent in San Diego with BorderReport.com. Tiggy Hendricks, senior editor covering immigration here at KQED, and Ahmed Aliaziz, immigration policy reporter with the L.A. Times. Um, I want to bring in another caller to Harry in Lafayette. Welcome. Hello. Hi, thanks hey, for joining us. My question is, uh, thank you. My question is uh, talking about being jerry-rigged and complex plan and complex legislation, a unique uh, issue from Sri Lanka. Mm-hmm. Sri Lanka had had a civil war for over 25 years, and uh, there was a rebels, you know, two groups fighting there for separate state and all. But uh, if you follow the Northern America, Canada versus Sri Lanka uh, versus U.S., the interesting policy there, because all the Sri Lankan refugees are in Canada, huh. Tamil refugees mostly, and because they recognize the common issue there, like French and English, this was Tamil and single language issue. So they allowed um, a free flow of migrants there, whereas the U.S. doesn't recognize uh, there was any conflict or war at all. So you cannot be a refugee from Sri Lanka to U.S., hmm. not I mean- on any basis. Right, right. So uh, it's a very interesting way how it was excluded. But you can become a refugee in the U.S. through the international U.N. If you were to one of the U.N. hearings and they declare, then I suppose U.S. has to take a share of uh, refugees uh, mm-hmm. by the uh, whatever the law. Mm-hmm. So they take uh, extremely small numbers through the United Nations. But if you strictly say that you you are a refugee from Sri Lanka because there's no, pretty much it's ending up being... The country is almost bankrupt now, as uh, the international news reports. Yeah. So it's a very unique exclusion. That's what I'm trying yeah, to say. Yeah, yeah. Thank you so much. And it's just a, you know, it's a, it's a good reminder that there are individual situations going across, going on across the world, where you know U.S. administrative decisions have these huge impacts um, on on people's lives. I mean. Salvador Rivera, I mean, this Sri Lanka's situation is is unique, as as Harry was noting. But there's a lot of places like in Haiti, it's kind of a civil war, I guess. You know, I mean, it's it's how the U.S. decides to view what's happening in Haiti has a huge impact on what Haitians arriving in the U.S. can say about their status. That's correct. It's, it's almost how you look at it. Um, like Sri Lanka, for example, like it's political, but I guess you can be a refugee for many reasons. So it, it can be political, it could be other things. Uh, for example, in Mexico, I've heard from a gentleman who owned a, a big ranch. He had avocado groves in the state of Michoacan. He had a processing plant. He had a big house on a hill. Mm-hmm. He had cars. He had the good life. And all of a sudden, cartels started fighting over the avocado industry in Michoacan and other parts of Mexico. So they drove him out because he would not pay, you know, a a ransom, so to speak, to be able to stay in business. And then the other cartel wanted him to work for them. And and so then his brother got kidnapped. So he was driven out by what he termed a war a war between drug cartels. And he came to the border pretty much with the clothes on his back and whatever little money he had left in his bank account after paying kidnappers to free his brother, which they never did. So you can be a refugee, I think, for many reasons. 
Yeah. And from it could be from any part of the world. It could be Sri Lanka, Haiti, where you said that the political system, the economy, everything is crumbling. So now there's lack of opportunities. There's no food. So that the UN could also call you a refugee because you're fleeing uh, poverty. You're fleeing, uh, you know, lack of food and nutrition. So uh, it different reasons to become a refugee. And uh, so that's why you're seeing people from many parts of the world come here saying, I'm a refugee. Give me a chance. Let me prove my worth to the U.S. that I can be productive, a productive member of society, and I can make a difference. So it's... It depends on where you're from, but I think ultimately everybody seems to be the same. They all have same concerns, same difficulties, same experiences, reasons for wanting to flee their countries and to be in the United States. And for better or for worse, I think our country's history is sort of held against what's going on now because this country was founded by immigration. You know, people who came long ago on the Mayflower, they were persecuted. The Dutch were being persecuted, so they left. And it's been wave after wave, whether it was the Germans and the you know Irish, Italians, they've always come here because they were fleeing something. Because when you do talk to migrants, they will all tell you, I would rather be home if I had a chance, if I had a good job, if I had opportunities, if people weren't forcing me out. There was another lady that I met, and I'm, I'm sorry I'm rambling. I no, met, no, no, no. She, she owned a butcher shop in the state of Jalisco. And she said one day the cartels came and said, hey, we want the title to your butcher shop because we want to launder money through it. Give it to us or we're going to kill you and your kids. So she said, she told them, give me 24 hours. But what she did, she packed up her kids, packed up her bags, went to the airport and flew to Tijuana mm. and has been living in a shelter for months now. It's mm. just, it's horrible. So again, you can be a refugee for many reasons, and, but they all have the same goal. They, they, they're trying to flee something horrible and they're hoping to get to the U.S. with the land of opportunity, where the streets are made out of gold. You know, right. but we right. used to think long ago. Yeah, or at least not getting shaken down by um, exactly you know, organized that crime a lot. Cartels, right. yeah. Um, mm-hmm. You know, Leah writes in to say you're focusing on the southern border as if we have no northern border. The northern border has a far higher instance of illegal crossing per the uh, Border Patrol. We focus on the south because this is a racist country that uses brown people as a political cudgel. The left refuses to remove this cudgel from the hands of the right by pointing out that they are fighting the entry of brown people rather than actually worrying about the bigger hole in the northern border. Talk talk to me a little bit about that, uh, Hamed. I I imagine you've, you've encountered this argument. Yeah, I would say, you know, the southern border, as far as the the numbers and um, the impact across border cities, the southern border is just a a bigger issue just from a numbers perspective. I mean, you're looking at this last month, more than 200,000 arrivals. So I think uh, that is where all the focus uh, for the media and, and especially important from the government is that is the the biggest challenge right now for you know not only uh, the past administrations uh, but but this administration especially. Yeah, Techie, how wh- how do you see trying to cover this in that way? I mean, we're in California; we are you know closer to the southern border. Um, but how do you try and get an overall immigration picture, understanding that what's happening there is only one slice of everything that's happening in immigration 
Right. Well, I mean, I think, you know, you kind of have to keep the, the, the big picture and the, the specificity in mind at the same time. And in terms of the big picture, I think it's fair to say that increasing migration is a global phenomenon, um, whether it's, you know, legacies of war and colonialism and, and corruption, repression, violence, lack of rule of law, uh, whether it's uh, climate change leading to displacement and the fact that the world is, you know, more and more globalized, communication is easier, travel is easier. These things are what's happening at U.S. borders, and I, I think in, indeed it is more, much more so at the southern border, um, is also playing out in many other parts of the world. And, um, uh, you know, uh, the sort of the, the, the holistic solution really is about, you know, the, the right to stay home as, as, a, mm-hmm. as a, 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 an immigration colleague once wrote. I mean, that, you know, people addressing the root causes of why people need to leave, helping strengthen and fortify um, governments, governance, um, the rule of law and fighting corruption and, and giving people some economic opportunity. It's not easily done. It's not easily, you know, implemented by the U.S. as as an outside power, but we do have a fair amount of influence. Um, and, and it takes putting some money behind it, which, again, has maybe not happened um, quite to the to the mm-hmm. scale that would be effective. And, and then on the sort of the more micro level or the local level or like, you know, where the rubber meets the road for people's lives. I mean, Salvador is working on the border covering the stories and experiences of migrants. Um, but we can also look at California as a place of arrival. And we do indeed have um, a border with Mexico ourselves. Uh, and how we as a state uh, and how our leadership is approaching the arrival of migrants is really sort of starkly different at this point from from a Texas, from an Arizona, from um, the political leadership in Florida, um, which has been tending to, to demonize um, migrants. And it was interesting, actually, a, a colleague here, uh, KQED, just flagged for me some language in, in Governor Newsom's um, January budget proposal where he's saying, you know, over these last few years, we've really put a lot of energy into supporting humanitarian services for migrants who are arriving, and we want to keep doing that. But California needs more um, dollars from the federal government to to make that possible. And so he put a little placeholder in the budget saying, like, we're going to work with Congress. We're going to work with the administration, try to get, you know, some some real dedicated funding for receiving migrants, helping them get their feet on the ground. And in his May revision of the budget, he was, you know, the placeholder is for an actual dollar amount. But it, it just speaks to to a commitment that California is making mm-hmm. to be a, a welcoming place versus a, you know, a place of, of restriction and turning people away. Before I go back to the phones, I, I just want to note you know, a historical note, which is just that, you know, many of these countries that we're talking about, you know, Cuba, Nicaragua, Haiti, Venezuela, you know, the U.S. historically exerted power in these places along particular dimensions. And 
you know, in that U.S. power, I think sort of gives us some something of a duty as well, you know, because we have had we have played a big role, even if Americans aren't always aware of the role that we've played, you know, throughout the Americas um, in, in shaping their political and economic fortune. So that's I, I think it's just an, it's just important to note. Um, and we can talk about it in any given country, but ac- across the board, it's it's pretty much true. Let's um, bring in uh, Danny in Pleasant Hill. Oh, hi. Good morning, uh, Alexis. I've been enjoying your show since you started. And uh, thank you so much for a wonderful program. Uh, you know what? I'm an immigrant myself. I was born in the Philippines. My parents brought me here. It took me 10 years after they immigrated to the United States to rejoin them. And it mm-hmm. took them 20 years, my parents, to come over after my uncle petitioned them. Uh, my uncle, he immigrated to the United States in 1930 to work the farms of California. But my question is this. I was overhearing one of your guests talking about the Jalisco situation and, and the drug cartel, and some people flee. But then there are a lot of places in Mexico that are progressive, and I've been to Mexico many, many times, where, where life is, uh, is thriving and progressive. Why can't they immigrate there or move there and start all over again instead of coming over to the United States, instead of leaving the country that they love? That's all but I guess it's just a comment uh, uh, that I, I'm making. No, Danny, Thank it's, a, it's so a, no, it's a really good point, and I, I think it really helps um, highlight, you know, the the intra Mexican differences, you know, between you know the South and the North and Central Mexico. Um, we, I'm, Salvador Rivera, I, I'm sure that you encounter people who have tried or think about that too. Um, talk to me a, a little bit about that. Well, the fear sets in. So if you're fleeing Michoacan, they're go, they're going to find me in Tijuana because the cartels are everywhere. And there's crime in Tijuana. You can't run a business in Tijuana be, it, without being extorted. They, they call it the, the charge, the, the piso, the charge for like step translated. So if you want to operate, you got to pay someone. So this is, this is Mexico wide. Um, yes. If you have connections and you have money, you might be able to sustain a better life. The, and, and I, I get the argument, like, why can't they stay? Or why can't they go to Canada? Why can't they go to England or, or some other Germany, first world countries? Well, one is most of them have relatives in the United States already. And they, it's an example of how you can prosper if you do go to the U.S. But I do believe it's it's almost unrealistic to ask people to wait their turn. And I get it. Hey, my grandparents or my uncles, they came here, they waited, they got their green card after 15 years. It's a very valid argument. But when you're starving or people are trying to kill you or you're being persecuted because the person you love may be of the sex same gender as you um, because your sexual orientation may not be what people agree with or your government. Like I said, it doesn't protect you. It protects your rights to choose who you want to fall in love with or marry. You know, those people, you're not going to wait in line when you're, you're starving. You have nothing. Your kids don't have opportunities, can't go to school. Um, so that's the, the, the issue that U.S. is facing. How do we organize? How do we set up a system where we do help people who want to flee, who are seeking better opportunities. And that is, is, is incredibly difficult, especially in recent months, years. We've just seen the numbers skyrocket. 
Well, and I just wanted to figure out how to do this. Yeah, no, and you know, it's a, it's a it's a really good point. We really appreciate your perspective, having you know encountered so many so many people in these situations. I just wanted to note um, for Danny too that you know, like say Venezuelans, there's like almost two million Venezuelans living in Colombia now. You know, so it's like this is kind of I I think people kind of don't recognize how huge the the numbers are, and that it's not just the U.S. People are scattering. Um, throughout the Americas for, for different reasons. Um, I did want to get to one last uh, question. Hamed, I'm going to throw this to you. You know, uh, our listener Holly writes, please have the guests address the huge and ongoing rise in internal displacement and cross-border immigration as people around the world, including in the U.S., become victims of climate change impacts. Yeah, that, that is uh, an issue that you know has been ongoing. I mean, especially... Um, you know, across the world, people are are fleeing because of the you know the issues with climate change, um, and, and this has been something that the Biden administration has, you know, you, you saw a lot of discussion around trying to recognize this um, formally uh, through the U.S. government some way, but I think you know, like many things on the border, uh, the numbers kind of have gotten in the way of any structural changes and trying to, you know, rethink the way we do our asylum system and how people could qualify for asylum. But this is one of the things that had been mentioned uh, previously is recognizing. Got a final couple comments um, from listeners. Sharon writes in to say, first, give a pathway to citizenship to the dreamers, DACA recipients, those with temporary protective status and the 11 million undocumented people. Work to assure that all people in the hemisphere have the right to stay home and lead productive and prosperous lives. Finally, open all borders, just like capital and goods flow among all countries. Establish one legal labor market to remove the massive illegal one we have now. Mary writes, rather than millions of people around the world piling into the U.S. with all the cost to our society to absorb them, I would like to see people stay and work to make their own countries the kinds of societies, economies, and governments that they want to live in. And picking up and leaving, aren't they abandoning their responsibilities to their own peoples and communities? As one consequence to the U.S., how much are the millions streaming to the U.S., exasperating and perhaps creating our acute housing shortage and soaring costs? We've got a lot of Different, oh, and Noel tweets, uh, Republicans get so much traction from border issues with their base that they still don't have enough reasons to take care of comprehensive immigration reform. Little reported is the labor shortage that has resulted from immigration levels going down during the pandemic. As always, a lot of polarization around immigration on this show and uh, in, in life out there in the world. We've been talking about the situation along the U.S. southern border and President Biden's efforts on immigration policy with Hamed Aliaziz, immigration policy reporter with The Los Angeles Times. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. Salvador Rivera, correspondent based in San Diego with The Border Report. Thank you, Salvador. Thank you very much. Appreciate all your work. And thanks so much to our own Taiki Hendricks, senior editor covering immigration for KQED. Thank you so much, Taiki. Thanks for having me, Alexis. This is Forum. I'm Alexis Madrigal. Stay tuned for another hour ahead with Mina Kim. Funds for the production of KQED's Forum are provided by the John S. and James L. Knight Foundation, the Generosity Foundation, the Germanicos Foundation, and the Heising Simons Foundation. Support for Forum comes from San Francisco Opera. Set 10 years after a school shooting, the critically acclaimed opera Innocence takes us into a complex emotional journey where our understanding of innocence and guilt is constantly upended. Kaya Sariajo's ethereal score collapses the past into the present as a community of survivors grapple with how to move forward. Don't miss the highly anticipated American premiere of Innocence, June 1st through 21st. Learn more at sfopera.com.
We've all got those parts of our house where the internet just won't go. Well, if you had wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you could worry less about dead spots. Because with wall-to-wall Wi-Fi from Xfinity, you get fast speeds, reliable connection in every room, and power for all of your devices, even when everyone's online. That's wall-to-wall Wi-Fi only with Xfinity. Restrictions apply. Not available in all areas. Actual speeds vary. Did you ever wonder what it's like to live alone, hidden in the woods, not speaking to a single soul for 30 years? Or wander the desert, uncover a hidden well, and dive to the bottom of the deepest water hole for 2,000 miles? The Snap Judgment Podcast takes you there with amazing stories told by the people who live them with an original soundscape that drops you directly into their shoes. Snap Judgment. Listen and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.